the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and we have a lot to cover today. Holy cow, do we have a lot to cover. I mean, it is a fascinating time. We could spend our time, by the way, talking about things like um, the release of uh, the basketball player. Uh, Last name is Griner. I forget her first name right now. I apologize, but uh, that's great news. That is great news. I, I, you, there's no messing around. You say, hey, whoever got it done, whoever pulled it off, whoever made the work, made it work, uh, get after it. Great job. Thank you for doing that for America. Uh, we needed her home. And, you know, I think she did something wrong and she probably got caught for it. I think it was a drug charge or something. And, I, I, you know, I heard someone say, let's not make everyone who breaks a law a hero. So I'm not saying she's a hero. But uh, it's great she's home. Let's stop be silly. And I'm s- very sorry that the uh, Marine, uh, Whalen, I think his name is, is left behind. Uh, but they'll get him now. I hope we'll get him soon. And I hope some of this is the beginning of people realizing um, that in life, as well as in war, you negotiate. And especially when you're trying to stop war or stop killing or stop suffering, whether it's the suffering of someone held in a, uh, you know, with a serious uh, sentence, uh, almost it certainly seemed draconian, you know, way too much like this uh, basketball player, Griner, or whether in a war. And I don't, it doesn't matter. There's people in Kiev, uh, in people in Ukraine, people uh, in Russia. I guess it's mostly Russians fighting, people dying over this. And they, when Russia has nuclear weapons, so we got to stop this. So I hope it's the beginning of negotiations to get things headed in the right direction on all fronts, on all fronts. But congratulations. We could talk about that all day and maybe we should, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> we could also talk about uh, the Elon Musk um, uh, situation and what is happening there. And I think I will next week. Um, I think I will next week. Now, I, I, let, me, let me just say one thing before I get to what you really need to know about the um, about the, 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 the Musk thing. What Musk is showing by giving us a look under the hood at Twitter is that Twitter was, in fact, um, focused on helping their own ideological allies. This is not a surprise. Why isn't it a surprise? Because humans are humans. And have you ever met someone? And let me give you an example. In, in, um, in Missouri, where I'm from, there is a great there was a great man. He's dead now named Charles Drury. And Charles Drury came from nothing came from nothing in Cape Girardeau, came from a small town outside of Cape Girardeau, a farmer. And he came from nothing. He became a a laborer. I think he was a a guy working in tiling with his brother. They were tiling small hotels when they were in their 20s, and they realized, let's build our own hotel. And uh, 50 years later, 60 years later, when he passed away, he was the head of the Drury Hotels, and they had hundreds, I don't know, 150, 200 hotels, and he was a very successful man. His whole life, Mr. Drury cared a lot about fighting abortion. And, and trying to make it so less abortions happen. And he was, he was what we call pro-life. And so I don't, wouldn't say his business is he liked selling rooms to people that came, uh, to, uh, to be, uh, to stay there, but he supported people that were on his side of that equation. That's natural. Humans are human. 
And so when it's a publicly traded company, by the way, you have a different kind of set of responsibilities. That's one of the challenges of running a publicly held company. Drury's wasn't. So what you see with Musk is Musk is saying, hey, I'm showing you that Twitter was in this particular forum. You know, Charles Drury running a hotel was public facing, meaning the public had to come in and you never felt uncomfortable if you were not pro-life. But he still supported pro-life. Or here's an example. The Drury Hotels never allowed pay-per-view pornography because Mr. Drury didn't think that was appropriate. Now, he could do that. It's his own business. And people knew that. And if you wanted pay-per-view porn, you didn't stay there. Tragically, you stayed at the Marriott, which was owned by, I think, a, a prominent uh, uh, Christian uh, Mormon family. And they, they, but they allowed it. And anyway, it's a big moneymaker. But in the case of Musk, he's saying, hey, like, it's a private company. I don't think anyone yet is saying anything that's happened is illegal. I don't think they're saying that yet, but since it's not just a public-facing company, it is sort of a public square, it kind of matters to people differently, right? So we're hearing that. But here's one aspect of this, and I don't, I didn't mean for this to become my whole uh, uh, opening segment, but I'll, I'll sort of finish and wrap it up. Uh, he, he, with Musk, he's showing you what was hidden from the public, and what we're expecting to find there's more coming is you know that first there was uh, uh first there was this contact between the biden campaign and uh and the fbi and some managing of the of the hunter biden laptop release and uh and and sh- shutting it down and slowing it down now there's a set of things about how there's shadow banning and banning certain people libs of tiktok were particularly disliked if you see the former uh head of um the censoring division his last name is roth I mean, he's a young guy. He's in his, like, I don't know, late 20s, maybe? Really young guy. Might be a super genius. But he's a real, full-on liberal. And he's basically saying, uh, we had to censor all these people because they scared me. He's what he's saying. Now, again, it's not illegal, I don't think. I don't think it's illegal. But it's different because it's a public-facing company that is, uh, I mean, it's not a, not just a public-facing company. It's kind of a public square. So one contrast, by the way, and then i got to stop. I'm going too long on this. One contrast, by the way, is Musk excuse me, is Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg publicly gave, and it's known, over $400 million to the efforts to fortify the election in 2020. And so that was his own private money funneled through a foundation and given out to different places. That was his money, and you can see it. Even if it was slower to see because of disclosures and things, you saw it eventually. But you don't necessarily have a Musk take over a company and tell you what happened. In fact, in a, most contexts, if there was Twitter doing what they did in 2020, and if there wasn't any allegation that it was illegal, breaking the law, criminal law, you would expect that the company would make it disappear or never talk about it. You don't have to talk about your deliberations of your company inside. So all of this is my, my point on this is, are we going to find out more? And ultimately, when you have such glaring confirmation of what a lot of people thought, it starts to cause my old phrase that I like to use to you all, distrust and verify. Your opening position is distrusting what you're seeing because you can't really tell anything is good. I mean, the FBI, I, even if, even three years ago, no, maybe five, I don't know, in the last four to five years, I would have started off a segment on the FBI and saying something like a lot of us did, like, ah, you know, don't blame the rank and file if there's a few bad apples. But at a certain point, you, you see a systemic, you know, a system, the FBI, that, that is not trustworthy, whether it's the way they're targeting January 6th, folks, the way they haven't answered questions on on the pipe bombs, the way there there is uh, the, the FISA warrants that were manipulated. Some of the key people at the top at a certain point, the create the, the sense 
is distrust. And here's my last point on this. I'm sorry. This is not what I meant to talk about. Is this. Maybe it's a double what you need to know. A double wink today. Is that the, my, my, my final thought on this is America, our kind of wonderful nation, is, is cohesive, is held together in large part because we decided to share a set of values about the rule of law and about the, um, uh, the ethics of, of uh, relationships, meaning if you in America, if you make a contract, you're expected to live up to it and the law will support that and the people expect that. That's not common in the rest of the world. Oh, excuse me. Let me say it better. That's not completely common and it's not completely uh, uh, the way it is. In places, it's various levels. That's always been. And that was informed by the sort of Judeo-Christian ethic that said you're going to honor your word. There was a sense of uh, ethics and, and rule abiding. And insofar as you continue to see the erosion of trust because people see that it's not abiding by rules and norms that we all recognize. That's the key is we recognize them. Then it becomes just about power. I've told you before. Is it the, uh, is it the abiding by power or abiding by ethics? Is it abiding by truth or is it abiding by, you know, want? So that's what you, that's what you need to know in that. All right. But uh, here's what I want to talk about. Here's what I'm sorry. This is, I'll go, I'll go double on this double wink today. It's, it's the end of the week. Double wink. Kirsten cinema announced that she's becoming an independent. Now, one of the things that you have to know, what you need to know is how power works, how power works. Power does not work in the way that you, you may think when you look from the outside. Always. Sometimes it does. So, for example, um, who is the most powerful single elected official in the public government? Elected official in the public government. Most powerful. I mean, I guess you could say the president is because he's got the, the military. But the, the number one sort of, I don't know, dictator, I joke around with that small d dictator, is the Speaker of the House. Because the Speaker of the U.S. House, once there's a vote on the House, a Speaker, that person is in. He has all the power. She has all the power to, to put what's on the floor, what's passed. What's, so, so that person becomes instantly one of the most powerful people in human history. That's true. Okay. In the Senate, Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer, when they're in charge of their caucus, it's not quite the same thing because the Senate allows each senator to be a real stick in the mud, to be a real player. It's a completely different setup. So Chuck Schumer is constantly negotiating with his own caucus and the opposition. That's the way that works. And therefore, that's why in the last four years or three years, you've seen Kirsten Cinema, formerly a Democrat from Arizona, now an independent, and Democrat Joe Manchin basically, basically running the Senate. Now, that's true. That's what's gone on. So what happened in the last few days is uh, uh, Warnock wins re-election. Reverend Warnock from uh, from uh, Georgia. So it's fifty one forty nine in the in the U.S. Senate, and Cinema announcing she's going to become an independent. What's it make it? Well, it's fifty to forty nine, and one. Now she doesn't have enough. If they stick together, fifty plus the uh, the the, the uh, pl fifty plus the um, the uh, tiebreaker in the Senate is the is the vice president. Well, that Democrats can hold together, but it just made this happen. Cinema and Mansion are back in charge. If you thought there was a new shift and it was going to be easier for Schumer, they're back in charge. And my point here is to recognize how the levers of power work, because what you need to know is when Chuck Schumer and, and Mitch McConnell are out trying to get people elected, they have only one set of constituents. Those two, the Senate. 
the guys running for speaker, whether it's Kevin McCarthy, Andy Biggs, whether it was Nancy Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries is the name of the new guy who's going to run since Pelosi's stepping down. They care about one set of constituents. It's not the country. It's not even their district because they're always in a safe district. It's their House of Representatives, their caucus. And so the power is in the people who understand how to do it. Another example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a freshman, She's not, she just won her second term, I think it is. She's very junior. In the House of Representatives, in order to get any power, you have to be there long enough to end up a chair of a committee because the way the Speaker delegates his massive authority is through the, the chairman of the committees. Except if the margin of the set of the House is so close that one or two or three members can basically steer the thing. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, a few weeks ago, it looks like, I don't know for sure. I did see her once. I didn't get to ask her. But she looks like she uh, uh, you know, went and said to Kevin McCarthy, if you're going to be speaker, I'll back you. But I want some things, too. And she's going to be on the oversight committee. She's going to be on other things. She realized the lever of power for her is in the tight margin. It looks like the Republicans will have 223 or four in the House, and they need 218. So they only have four or five leeway. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene understood, understood the levers of power which is exactly what Kirsten Cinema did. Now, Kirsten Cinema has to wonder, she has to be saying to herself and she hasn't said it yet, will she run for re-election? It's very difficult to win as an independent for re-election. Uh, uh up in uh, Bernie Sanders did it for a number of years and up in Vermont there's always been a little bit of a tradition of that. Both parties are are fairly weak Democrat and Republican party in Vermont. So they they have ended up with independents, but it's very uncommon. That's a that's a pretty unique uh situation. So again, what you need to know, what you need to know is that the uh, the levers of power and the people who have them are should be clear if you can see it. You got to kind of work your way to see it, and that's what we're seeing here with Kirsten Cinema. It's a really big deal what she did. It's a really big deal what she did. It's a really big deal because it signals uh, that she understands what's going on. Now it does send a message, though it does make you think. It's only for two years. She's up for re-election in 2024. Uh, and so it, it doesn't, you know, she's not going to be able to do this. And uh, and so is, by the way, so is Joe Manchin. So Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have a window, a window in which they can be dominant. And the window closes. It closes. Uh, well, wait a second. Uh, yeah, it, it closes. She, she's up for re-election. I'm checking. Yeah, she's up for re-election. It closes uh, pretty quickly about a year from now. Because once you're into the calendar year of the next election, Things get uh, it's a little tighter, but uh, you talk about power. If Kirsten Cinema now goes independent for this last uh, two years of Joe Biden's term, what if Joe Biden loses for president and there's a Republican coming in? Then the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, fifty to forty-nine plus Cinema. She's really in charge. I'm talking about two years from now when they would be, you know, their last chance to have Joe Biden sign a bunch of stuff before a Republican comes into office. It's exciting. I mean, it's going to be interesting. And that's who's going to run America. That's who's going to run America. More important than anybody is Kirsten Cinema. Fascinating. Fascinating time. All right. We're going to take a break. We got a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Thank you for turning in. Don't forget, excuse me, tuning in. Th- don't forget, please, please go to ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email. You get this wink in the morning. What you need to know, tell other people, pass it on, and we will be back. Uh, oh, let me. Um, Yes, we'll be back. I was thinking about uh, next week who I had I was trying to get somebody to talk about the uh, Twitter, uh, the Twitter files, the releases. We'll get that done. We'll get that done. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on a pro America report. Back in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with Ted Malik. Our friend uh, Ted Malik is the uh, author of, excuse me, one of the books that I just looked at the other day is Trump's World. He wrote that with Felipe Coelho, uh, and it's excellent. Also, he wrote a book called The Plot to Destroy Trump, and he's been CEO of the Roosevelt Group for decades and uh, a professor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ted Malik, welcome back. How are you? I'm very well. I I seem to have stirred some... (laughs) <laughs> question with my uh, demand for more morality in the financial services industry. That's right. So that's what the piece that's over at American Greatness is called FTX and the root of our financial crisis. And instead of just talking about whether crypto works or whether uh, there was irrational exuberance, I think that actually might touch on that a little bit. <laughs> your, your point is, hey, wait a second. There's something else going on here about morality, about ethics. Uh, first of all, Ted, um, when you started out in this in the business as well as in academia, you know, the cottage industry of business ethics seemed to explode in like the 80s. Before that, did they just not teach in, in business schools or in the high powered finance schools courses on ethics? Was it just assumed that you were ethical? You know, I think that's a general observation that uh, I mean, gentlemen, some gentlewomen, very few you know, had come up through the right ranks and families and that they were going to be behaving decently. Uh, yeah, and then, then there were certain scandals and uh, the um, business schools reacted. And they said, well, we won't teach just management. We'll have to give people some frameworks. It's mostly uh, in business school, it's a um, it's either a get out of jail free card or uh, don't do this, go this far. And you won't have to go to jail in the first place. So there wasn't, even in business schools, to uh, relate back to the question, there, there really wasn't much ethical thinking. All right. All right. So now, as, as the, your piece says, uh, a few uh, paragraphs in, and now front and center comes FTX. And you call it the Ponzi crypto exchange was fake from the outset. Now... Why did so many investors fall for it? I guess it's the same reason they fell for Madoff, right? But what is your sense of of why they fell for this one? Yeah, well, the answer I say is is disclosed by Michael Lewis, who is a friend of mine, worked on Wall Street at Solomon Brothers in the 1980s. He said it in his book, Liar's Poker. Then he said it later in another article. He said, after the fall, greed, stupidity, and really bad luck, how Wall Street did itself in, uh, and his last line in that famous article was something for nothing. It never loses its charm. Hmm. Wow. Well, and, and so that's FTX and FTX. They um, they went for people fell for it. Um, it is so it broadly, Ted, is crypto the problem or was crypto just confusing enough for people that they didn't know that they did what they didn't know and they fell for it? You see what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it's the, the latter. I mean. Uh, crypto is, you know, it's not brand new, but a newer um, instrument. Fascinated some people, not many of them really understood it. Uh, what I'm shocked at is the long list. I've seen this list of 30 or more very sizable, consequential uh, venture capital firms, and I know some of them, and even their principals, who felt for this, who basically said, yeah, well, let's put some millions, invest some millions, even tens of millions into this. Without kicking the tires, you know, without doing any due diligence uh, uh, and basically accepting their numbers without any audit. 
Right, right. We're talking with uh, Ted Malik. His piece is over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, FTX and the root of our financial crisis. So uh, then back to this. We now know what the FTX financial crisis is. We do know that the contours of this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried's um, lifestyle, he was giving uh, lots of money to Democrats. He was giving lots of money. So he was giving some money to incumbent Republicans, too, we should say. Um, yes, but, he was. Yes, and, he was. Yeah. Mitch McConnell amongst them. So let's let's say it. Uh, he was also spending lavishly on himself and his inner group and their um, per, uh, perverted sexual group activities. Mm-hmm. He bought uh, upwards of $300 million worth of real estate for people, including his parents, and no one looked the other way. And so the, the – but, and, but uh, again, a couple paragraphs down, you say, face it, at the very root of our financial crisis is a moral vacuum, which can only be filled with true virtue. If that's true, Ted Malik, how do you, uh, you know, yesterday or the day before, one of the, a couple of days ago, I interviewed Ron Kessler, and he basically described how a Yale history professor, Professor Gage, has written a book on the FBI and whitewashed all the stuff the FBI did in the in the Hoover era, just basically glossed over it amazingly. And my point is that um, we seem to have lost the uh, universities completely. So if it can only be filled by true virtue, where do you get that? How do you how do you inculcate that? It's sad that you have to ask me that question. <laughs> it is, I know. but <laughs> So the answer to that question, in short version, is you get it from all the intermediating structures in our society. You get it, first of all, from your family. You get it, secondly, from your educators and schools. You get it from your civic associations. And primarily, I would argue, in this case, you get it from your religious institutions. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact is, all of those have been... What could I say? Undermined. So I used to run into these students all the time when I was teaching MBA students, and they'd basically say to me, I don't understand what you're saying. I've never heard the word virtue. What does that mean? Hmm. Right. Right. There you go. Um, the uh, the the your, your book, it was is it doing virtuous business? Is that the title yes. of it? Am I getting it right? And it was made into a PBS documentary. So 15 million people saw it. It was it was overexposed. Yeah. Huh. Is 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 that um, I don't know. Is it catching on, Ted? I mean, do, do, is there a way no, that it's not catching on? Obviously, that's why <laughs> we have these scandals. Now, I would say two things. Now, we have. Still after scandal, and I end my article saying that if we don't do more to fill the vacuum, then why just expect more of these scandals? They're more routine, more regular, bigger than the last one. On the other hand, as I have said and said this in books, uh, when I study companies, particularly small and medium-sized companies, some larger companies, those that have taken the time to really inculcate their corporate cultures around virtues, around decency, uh, they they are very good and long-lasting, enduring companies that also very profitable companies. Capitalism is not the root of this evil and this tragedy, sin, uh, whatever you want to declare it. Uh, Capitalism is not about greed, as Michael Douglas made it out to be in the movie named Wall Street. Capitalism is about honest, fair brokering, about fair profits. So we shouldn't be attacking capitalism. We should be returning to the actual moral sentiments of original capitalism as Adam Smith smelled them out. Um, we're talking again with Ted Malik and his piece, again, is over at American Greatness. Um, it's so much more than a, a description of FTX and the root of, and what the, the um, scandal. 
gets to the root of it and, and, and points a, a path forward. Um, Ted, again, you you are you mentioned your documentary ran on PBS, the documentary of your one of your books. You were uh, at various times a lecturer. You've done, um, you know, TV appearances, all that kind of stuff. At this point in the high speed world of, of big tech and social media, is there a way you could envision? I mean, it's not a huge question, I know, but virtue, uh, not not virtue signaling the opposite. I mean, you, you, ESG is a is a is a stupid yes. game that says virtue signal and will reward you because we're corrupt, too. But but as you point out, virtuous businesses can be more successful. It's an amplifier. That's the argument, at least. Is there a way that that can, again, be uh, uh, be um, brought forth as and, and felt? so that it's to an advantage and therefore people uh, embark on it because it doesn't feel like it now. Yeah, so I think we have to tell the story over and over again. We have to repeat it because it's this is something you habituate. It's not something you do once. It's not a vaccine. It's not something you get in a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> right. You get inculcated in it. And uh, I think in, in our society at present, there's very little of that going on. So, um, yeah, it's very helpful to read things. And I've, I've certainly written lots of case studies. People like to read about real companies doing real things. And there are an endless number of those across every industry on every continent. I think it's very helpful to amplify those, particularly those that are, that, you know, that are performing well and, and, and based in these virtues. Um, and we have to point out those that are not, which uh, also exists. It's the other bookend. There are bad actors. Uh, we're talking with uh, we're talking with uh, Ted Malik and his pieces again over at uh, uh, American Greatness amgreatness.com. All right, Ted, we're to the end of the interview. What's next? Uh, we love uh, my listeners okay. love to get. Yeah, the yeah, it's always want to know what's next. So my next piece is uh, has an interesting title. It's called Lee Z for the RNC. I see. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's a little code. You, you, yeah, I've yeah, already I, figured I, it out. I, I see it. I, I you have figured it out. <laughs> but you are too clever. <laughs> uh, everybody always says nice things about the host, especially at the end of the interview. All mm-hmm. right. Well, I know what you mean. I'm, I'll be interested as a former RNC member. Um, I know the math and I know, I, mm-hmm. I will tell you, there's only one oh. man in America, one vote in America that matters to make Ronna McDaniel not the next chairman and he's down and you're he's your old friend he's down in Mar-a-Lago if he doesn't weigh in to break that up I just know the rhythm of that place it's not filled with profilers in courage it's filled with folks that will go along with the way it's going so uh, I know well, maybe I'm sure you'll address that and we'll talk about it next week okay all right so. thanks Ted Ted Malik everybody we will uh, maybe by the way maybe not next week because he gets his columns done so fast it could be that we're talking to him in a few days go over to America greatness.com and check out his work over there we'll be right back ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with our old friend Chris Shimolinsky over at Numbers USA. Uh, there's something, of course, ca- uh, of course it is because of we are, we, we are the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. I go as Eagle Ed Martin at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter. And the immigration legislation is called the Eagle Act that is being considered in this lame duck Congress. Numbers USA Vice President Chris Shimolinsky joins me now. Uh, Chris, what's the deal here? Well, what's the deal? How are they telling us it's great and it's not great? Walk me through what the Eagle Act does. <laughs> yeah, definitely not to be confused with the Eagle Forum. <laughs> um, so th- this legislation, <laughs> this the, this is this is a pretty awful idea, and of course it's it's introduced by Zoe Lofgren out in Silicon Valley in California. And once you hear the description of it, you'll you'll know why. So essentially, what it does is it allows most temporary, and I want to emphasize that word temporary, temporary foreign guest workers who are currently working here in the United States, including future ones that haven't gotten here yet, and allows them to actually stay and work here permanently as long as their employer sponsors them for a green card. So this is already happening for the high-skilled guest worker uh, visa program, but this is going to apply across all uh, visas now, um, including the H-1B, which the the H-1B, it's through a federal regulation. So this is actually going to put it into the federal code. But this is also going to apply to business visitors of multinational corporations that come here to to do work. And it's going to apply to treaty traders and, and a host of others, including H-2B visa workers, which are the low-skilled workers that come in to do things like landscaping and work in hotels and restaurants during peak seasons. So, uh, Christian Malinsky is our guest at Numbers USA. Chris, is this being done in the lame duck because nobody could do this in the light of day, or at least trying? Is that what, or is this something that's coming up uh, in the next session? By the way, it's numbersusa.org is the website. Numbersusa.org. Go ahead. Back to my question. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's definitely that's definitely part of it. I mean, this legislation has been around for actually quite a while. It was it was actually floated around in the in the Senate um, in the 116th Congress. So it's been around for a few Congresses and and it's been on the legislative calendar or it's at least it's been on the radar of, of House leaders, which which so Lofgren is is part of a member of that Democrat leadership team in the House of Representatives. It's been on their radar for for pretty much the entire session. I can't remember exactly when um, the House Judiciary Committee marked up this legislation, but it was at least six months to a year ago. So I think they are. I, I think there's two things at play. One, they're using the lame duck as a way to get it through because not many people are paying attention. And you have a couple members who are on their way out. So they're not held accountable to the, they won't be held accountable to the voters anymore. So I think that's one aspect of it. Um, and I think the second aspect is they didn't have the votes. We actually thought this was going to come to the floor earlier um, before Thanksgiving, and it, and it didn't make the calendar. And and the only thing that we can guess is because they didn't have the votes. And, and we hear they're trying to whip those votes now. And if it weren't for the fact that they have uh, seven or eight Republican co-sponsors, they may not have the votes because I don't think everybody, most of the Democrats are on board, but I don't think all of their caucus is on board with this legislation. Uh, Christian Malinsky is our guest, Vice President, Deputy Director over at numbersusa numbersusa.org uh, um chris 
just pretend you're them promoting this. What, what do they say anecdotally to to America that feels like the economy's off, the, the border's wide open, there seems like nothing's working well? How do they, with a straight face, do they even try to sell it or do they just hope nobody's paying attention and, and we just keep moving on? For those, I, I think part of it is they're going to hope that this just doesn't get any coverage. I mean, I you know I get the major newsletters that come out of that come out of DC every single morning. The politicos and the hills and the roll calls and the punch yeah. bowl news of the world. They're not covering. Right? They're not even mentioning it. Yeah, all the focus is on the leadership races. Uh, is Kevin McCarthy going to get enough votes on the omnibus spending bill? A little tiny bit of attention on the National Defense Authorization Act, and that's pretty much it. So they're ignoring these smaller bills. So I think that's one aspect of it, which is another reason why, you know, Democrats are trying to do this during the lame duck session. Um, so, so I think that's part of it. But those that will be forced to, to answer to the voters on this, I think, you know, the the argument that they're going to try to say is, hey, listen, you know, yeah, we, we don't like what's going on on the border, but but we're talking about skilled workers here and we're talking about the facebook's and the amazons and the apples of the world who can't get the workers that they need because you know they just simply have more job openings than there are applicants with such a low unemployment rate right now but remember all of those companies that i just announced amazon apple google they've all announced either hiring freezes or layoffs within the last month or two so it's just a complete um it, you know this is it's it just totally turning their back on american workers regardless of the skill it's uh that's exactly i was just going to say that that was what i was going to bring up i thought i heard that there was freezes that, that, that amazon especially was the one i heard there was freezes and and you would think in terms of amazon i guess maybe maybe amazon's hiring at the the truck driving level and maybe that's what <laughs> But they're not hiring uh, for the engineers. You know, the late Phyllis Schlafly, right. again, our guest is uh, Chris Cherlinski over at uh, Numbers USA. He's the vice president there, uh, NumbersUSA.org. The late Phyllis Schlafly used to go crazy because she would say, when they get out here and say, we need these foreign workers, uh, you know, engineers and others, she said, there's plenty of American, uh, they just don't want to pay them. They want to pay the cheaper amount. They want to pay 40% less for an Indian uh, national to come in and do the work. I, and, you know, so uh, it's a fake issue. What about the politics of this now, Chris? I mean, I, I know that's not numbers usa's bailiwick to, to be uh, pick a side but it seemed like the republican party had more and more understood um this was a workers issue an american workers first kind of thing is that fading uh, I don't think it's necessarily fading. I mean, we always knew that there were there there were a handful of Republicans that were very um, they were they were definitely open to the arguments made by the business side, especially Republicans that tend to be a little bit bit more libertarian in their political philosophy versus more conservative in their political philosophy. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to necessarily single anyone out from either the House or the Senate just because we haven't seen them vote. But again, there are eight Republican co-sponsors are a few Republican senators who are open to this idea. And again, you know, they're looking, they're, they're in tight with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They're in tight with, with, with Silicon Valley. And, and this is something that those two groups especially are, are really pushing for. I mean, you just look at earlier today, there's been a, there's been a compromise floated out in, in the United States Senate between Kirsten Sinema in Arizona and Tom Tillis in, in North Carolina. So Tillis, despite the, the, the border crisis, seems to be pushing an amnesty during the lame duck. So, 
So there are Republicans who aren't spectacular on this issue. And all we can do is try to educate them and bring them back and hope that they'll support at the end of the day, hope they'll support American workers. Is uh, is is the um, is the unemployment number this if, if you had uh, in terms of explaining to people the problem, the unemployment number is actually pretty good. Right. So um, and so people say, well, therefore, we you know, without again, it's pretty good sort of um, it's pretty good training by the media and others to have us say, oh, unemployment's pretty good. So why not? We need the we need the workers. That's not actually the point. I mean, part of the problem is that there's people that aren't even trying to get in the workforce. Right. And it's it's a it's sort of a deceptive uh, thing. Right. Right. You just hit the nail on the head with that comment. You know, we we still have not the, the, the labor participation report is still participation rate is still below the rate that it was at before the 2009 recession. From a job market perspective, think about that. We have not yet recovered from the 2009 uh, recession, despite claims by the Biden administration. They've created some crazy millions numbers of jobs over their first 18 months in office. So, yeah, the unemployment rate is low, but the unemployment rate only counts people who have actively been working, looking for work in the last four to six weeks. It does not count those people that have been looking for work, but simply gave up because they couldn't find anything. Um, and it also, it, it counts the people who have settled for part-time work because they can't find full-time work. It counts them as employed. So it's pretty deceiving. There is another unemployment rate, the use six rate, where you get a clearer picture. But I think that the best way to look at it is look at that labor participation rate and look at how low it is compared to past decades. It's, um, that's what I was just going to ask you. That's the best, that, that's the best, in your, the best way to see what's really happening is is the labor participation rate? Is that what you're saying? I, I think that's a good way, you know, especially if you look at where that labor participation rate was was in the 80s during the Reagan era when 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 women had entered the workforce, um, uh, you know, pretty much full onslaught. So you saw those labor participation rates really increase. Now, I will admit there's still a weakness within our within our metrics and with our government system. <laughs> who who would have guessed? Government hasn't quite <laughs> yeah. figured out how to count these numbers accurately. Right. Shocking. Right. So I think they're still trying to figure out how do you count people who are working full-time in the gig economy? That's things like Uber and, and, and DoorDash and those other types of companies like that where they're getting paid as, as contractors through an app. Um, so I think they're still trying to figure out them. They may be showing up as as outside the labor force when they're really participating in the labor force. But still, I don't think that's enough to really bring that number up. It's still going to be pretty low. And it just speaks volumes about what our government is doing. I mean, throughout the COVID pandemic, they were handing people money and really discouraging them from going out and getting a job. And it artificially has kept the unemployment rate down. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, Christian Malinsky, as always, thank you for the help. And over at numbersusa.org, you can see a lot more numbersusa.org. Uh, Chris Shimalinski, vice president over there and deputy director. Thanks, Chris. Thanks as always. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. It's helpful. That's helpful there. I, I got to dig into that a little bit more. I'm going to, I'm going to follow back up with him on the, uh, on how we get the right numbers to look at. Cause I think we're getting snowed by the unemployment numbers and, and that's uh, a trick that's been going on for a long time. Um, and uh, he, he got me really thinking about it. So, okay, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the pro America report. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Hey, headed into the weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. I will be going from basketball game to basketball game. I, my children at the age where they play in uh, in some uh, fall rec leagues, and it's awesome. I don't. I didn't grow up with rec leagues. I grew up with uh, everybody on the block coming down to my house or over to the Galapos house to play basketball. Um, so I don't, I, I don't really recognize it, but it's very fun. It's very fun. So I'm looking forward to a weekend of basketball running around. I hope you find something to entertain yourself also. As we get closer and closer to Christmas, I will say, I have to admit, I have to put the Christmas lights up uh, this weekend. And I, I, I've always dreaded that. I don't know why. I always feel like it's a, I, I like it when it's up. I like it when we get them all up. But I've just always dreaded it. And last year I was sick. I was not well. So my wife had to put them up. And she texted me the other day and said, don't forget, you're putting the lights up. I guess it's just one of those things. When they're up, they're great. So we'll be doing the lights and we have a 10 year old and my 10 year old uh, loves the lights and wants to know why they're not up earlier. I don't believe in the lights going up before uh, the weekend. I, I always believe the weekend after December 8th. Now, December 8th is now my son's birthday. My son was born uh, 16 years ago on December 8th. So that's one part of it. But I always thought the Feast of the Immaculate Conception for Catholics, that's a sort of a big feast day. After that, you go into it. So you get two full weeks, two and a half full weeks. And you inevitably don't take them down until, by tradition, the epiphany. That's what I do. So you go up on, say, the 10th or 11th, and you stay up for almost a month. That's enough time. People that put up the Christmas lights right after Thanksgiving, I object to this. All right. It's got to be bigger things to worry about. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, for everything he does to keep us on track. And Ryan Hyde, our associate producer, who helped fill in uh, the other day. He's great. He's great. He's going to replace me. I'm going to be Wally Pip to his Lou Gehrig. And uh, we'll see what happens. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you next week. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.